Atlantic. And I believe I first of eight lectures on the life and legacy of Mahatma Gandhi. I'm Sherm Garnett. I'm the dean of Madison College. And um, we're going to be filming this tonight. And our aim, thanks to the generosity of uh, Professor Gandhi, is to have, have all of these eight lectures uh, wonderfully edited um, with all the nice uh, illustrations that uh, and pictures and things, and then to have that archived and available on the web um, so that these lectures remain a kind of a part of a historic record of uh, assessment of uh, Mahatma Gandhi. And, and I couldn't be more excited about that. And it's a big project for MSU and especially for Madison College. But it fits with um, our goal at the college of doing more work in India. Um, and doing more things with uh, our friends in India. What I wanted to do, um, they put me off to the side because they are filming, and so that's a much better, better thing in the long run. So I get to use my reading glasses and I can actually remember what I was supposed to say. So I did want to thank a number of people um, who've helped us, uh, the provost and the president for providing the Hannah professorship. This is the second year that Professor Gandhi has been here, and we hope to bring him back next year, inshallah. Um, the Indian Council has been so generous uh, supporting us tonight with the um, reception and the food, um, and also going to help us on a couple of events um, next year. We have uh, Muslim Studies and Asian Studies as uh, sponsors. And we also have, uh, from the Indian-American community, a range of donors who are going to support the filming. And I hope, before the end of these lectures, to be able to tell you more about that. As I said, we're filming for a permanent archive, so turn off your cell phones um, and sneak out on the side very quietly if you have to. We will stop at the end of the lecture briefly to let anybody that is, uh, needs to go at that point before we start uh, questions and answers. And so we don't have a kind of rustling in the, in the back of the film. You know, I, I feel inadequate to the job of introducing uh, Professor Gandhi, um, but I'll try. He, as I said, he's been for two years the distinguished visiting Hannah professor at Michigan State University and at James Madison College. For quite a number of years, from 1997 to 2012, he was a um, professor at the Center for South Asian and Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He's had, held a number of other positions, including a research professor at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. He's received a number of awards and honorary degrees, which, uh, knowing him, I, I, I shouldn't mention this because uh, he wants to get on to business. Um, but he is a widely recognized, serious historian and um, public intellectual and, and uh, you know, just a, someone who's engaged in the good of society. To me, other than now knowing him, I first encountered him when I knew he was going to come through 
four of his uh, what will soon be 13 books. So he's written on Mahatma Gandhi, at least uh, two books, I think, maybe three. You could call the, la the last book was also about the position of Mahatma Gandhi in modern Indian society. Um, the Good Boatman, I, I read a couple of times preparing for the class that we held for some of our students are here to prepare for uh, Professor Gandhi's coming. But what I really wanted, uh, what would impress me so much about both his history of India and also his book on the Punjab was a serious look at the tragedy and the problems that each of uh, India's periods or especially the partitions caused, but also a, a kind of patient pointing towards uh, human capacity to do better than that, to raise one's sights to the people who saved someone of another faith, the people who helped a family from the old neighborhood or even a stranger uh, of a different faith at a time when other people had moved uh, towards violence and towards a kind of forgetfulness of what it means to be human. So I think his writings are permeated with that and I think his assessment of um, Mahatma Gandhi, you'll enjoy these lectures. I got a somewhat sneak peek of the early draft. I think they are well-crafted, they're connected. Uh, I guess uh, my last two things to say is it's also not a family memoir. I think in knowing Professor Gandhi, he's never put out front that he's talking because somehow he has a blood connection to Mahatma Gandhi. It's been, I think, the influence of Gandhi's legacy, his importance in India, and the big problem and joy and prospect of what India is and could become. So I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased tonight. I want to do one more thing that's sort of uh, administrative. There's eight of these. And we know not everybody can come to all of them. We're going to open and close at the Kellogg Center, November 1st and November 29th. And then every Tuesday and Thursday, uh, except for a little jog around Thanksgiving, um, we're going to have um, another lecture. So the next one is November 3rd, 2016, at, in, at Case Hall, the home of Madison College, again at 530. Uh, this will be on uh, Satyagraha and what was Gandhi's religion. All of these lectures, I think, tell a coherent story and a story that uh, I think especially I've been trying to tell my students is one that especially in America and especially now I think we need to contemplate seriously. So with that, I'd like to turn the podium over to Rajmohan Gandhi. Uh, thank you, Dean Chairman, very much. Uh, is my sound voice carrying? Is it okay? Uh, so, of course, I greatly appreciate this opportunity, and I thank everyone for attending. Thank you so much. I thank uh, MSU, the President, the Provost, uh, Professor Utpa, James Madison College, and Dean Sherman Garnett and his amazing team at Madison for creating this opportunity for me and for, for everybody. 
Now, I seek uh, this audience's indulgence if I make mistakes with the teleprompter, which I'm using for the first time. My wife and other friends wanted me to use the teleprompter so that I stay on message. Uh, but the device will also, of course, help the video uh, task. Uh, nobody will want to look for more than a couple of minutes at a fellow who's staring at his notes. Uh, as uh, Dean Garnett has mentioned, this is the first of eight lectures. The first two lectures, this one and the next one, will focus on Gandhi the individual, his goals, his dreams, his beliefs. The following four, lectures three to six, will focus one after the other on four great issues joined to Gandhi's life. The successful struggle against the British Empire for India's independence, the unsuccessful struggle to keep free India in one piece, the partially successful struggle for the rights of India's untouchables, and the great if unresolved question of nonviolence in our modern world. So those are lectures three to six. Lecture seven will return to Gandhi the person in the ultimate stage of his life, a very interesting stage. The eighth and last lecture will look at the Gandhi legacy at how Gandhi resonates in the world today. Many decades ago, back in 1948, when Gandhi was killed by an assassin's bullets, the world responded with shock, grief, and tributes. Today, close to 70 years later, he continues to be referred to in all sorts of places. Why does the world take notice of Gandhi? A clue may lie in what Albert Einstein said in 1939, nine years before Gandhi's death and eight years before India's independence. This is what Einstein said. A leader of his people unsupported by any outside authority a politician whose success rests not upon craft, nor the mastery of technical devices, but simply on the convincing power of his personality. A victorious fighter who has always scorned the use of force. A man of wisdom and humility armed with resolve and inflexible consistency, who has devoted all his strength to the uplifting of his people and the betterment of their lot. A man who has confronted the brutality of Europe with the dignity of the simple human being and thus at all times risen superior. Continues Einstein, generations to come, it may be, will scarce believe that such a one as this ever in flesh and blood walked upon this earth. These lines may be found in Einstein's book, Out of My Later Years, published in New York in 1950. Mark the absence in these lines of any reference to India. The Einstein of 1939, the year when Germany attacked Poland, sees Gandhi as a resident of planet Earth. Yes, he situates Gandhi against a Europe that had conquered far continents and ruled over vast populations. Many of Gandhi's imperial opponents were sure that driving the British out was Gandhi's primary, if not sole, goal. Thus, Pendril Moon, the Punjab-based civil servant, who became one of the empire's leading historians, would write, quote, the, de the deliverance of India from British rule which admittedly was Gandhi's chief political aim, would appear also to have been the dominant purpose of his life. He himself would have denied this. Now, aware of Gandhi's involvement in social, economic, and moral questions, men like Moon and Lord Wavell, India's viceroy from 43 to 47, whose papers Moon edited, 
called that involvement window dressing. Denying the evidence of Gandhi's lack of interest in money or in office, they called him a hypocrite. Wavell wrote in 1946 that he felt anti-British malevolence in Gandhi and that Gandhi's goal was the establishment of Hindu Raj. Today, however, a Gandhi statue stands next to the British Parliament and people in London, New York, Cape Town, Nairobi, Canberra, Ottawa, Islamabad and elsewhere associate Gandhi not with a dislike of races, nations or faith communities differing from his, but with the idea that at bottom humanity is one and that we should be the change we wish to see. In the India of today with its population of 1.2 billion and perhaps elsewhere too, the following pictures or words seem synonymous with Gandhi. One, the pocket watch that always hung from his waist. Two, a simple pair of eyeglasses under a bald head. Three, a broom that cleans. Four, the charkha or the spinning wheel. Five, a pinch of salt. Six, Vaishnava Jana, the song by the 15th century Gujarati poet Narsi Mehta, defining a good person as someone who feels the stranger's pain. Seven, an ancient line from an unknown author declaring that Ishwar and Allah refer to the same God. And also, yes, number eight, the call addressed to the British in 1942, quit India. This quit India Gandhi is the same, I think, as the Gandhi with his walking stick, what Indians call a lati. If we reflect on these Gandhi symbols, perhaps we may get to know what drove him. Let's start with the quit India call. There is no doubt that the world saw him as a champion for the dignity, equality, and independence of peoples lauded over by others. In 1921, when under Gandhi's lead, the campaign of non-cooperation with the empire was sweeping across India, Marcus Garvey cabled his support for the campaign from here in the US. In August of that same year, W.E.B. Du Bois, his journal, The Crisis, published the entire text of Gandhi's open letter to every Briton in India. After Gandhi's famous arrest and trial in the following year, the crisis wrote, White Christianity stood before Gandhi the other day and let us all confess, cut a sorry figure. Seven years later, in 1929, the crisis published on its front page, a signed message from Gandhi, perhaps the first he addressed directly to American blacks. Said Gandhi, let not the 12 million African Americans be ashamed of the fact that they are the grandchildren of slaves. There is no dishonor in being slaves. There is dishonor in being slave owners. Three years later, in 1932, an editorial in the African-American newspaper, The Chicago Defender, said, what we need in America is a Gandhi who will fight the cause of the oppressed. One who, like Gandhi, can divorce himself from the greed for gold. One who can appreciate the misery of the oppressed." Unquote. The Chicago Defender had identified the quality of Gandhi's fight. All over the world, people knew that Gandhi was fighting racial domination, and they also instinctively understood what Einstein would point out. Gandhi was showing that in dignity, the oppressed could rise superior to the oppressor. Throughout his life, moreover, 
Gandhi seemed to be as firmly opposed to wrongs committed by and among Indians as he was to the empire's high-handedness. Look, for instance, at his trek in the winter of 1946-47 across the Noakhali area, now part of Bangladesh, where minority Hindus had faced death, rapes, and forcible conversion at the hands of the Muslim majority. On this journey, much of it conducted on foot, Gandhi ministered patiently to victims and their families. Serving as his interpreter and aide, the anthropologist Nirmal Kumar Bose thought that Gandhi's tenderness towards sufferers soothed them and lifted them above their sorrows. Above their sorrows. Yet this Noakhali Gandhi was also frank about the Hindu practice of untouchability and the need for caste Hindu repentance. Noticing that East Bengal's untouchables, the, the Namashudras as they were called, had been braver than caste Hindus in responding to attacks, Gandhi insisted that village peace committees of Muslim and Hindu residents should include Namashudras. And he warned caste Hindu women that if they continue to disown the untouchables, more sorrow was in store. To Hindu women, he proposed a radical step on 3rd January 1947. This is what he told them. Invite a Harijan, his phrase for an untouchable, every day to dine with you. Or at least ask the Harijan to touch the food or the water before you consume it. Do penance for your sins. Those aware of the India of 1947, even those aware of the India of 2016, know what a bold suggestion this was. Recalling what Penrill Moon and Lord Wavell had said, we can ask if fighting untouchability wasn't also a political goal. Gandhi indeed argued right from 1916 that if high caste Hindus did not alter their treatment of low castes and untouchables, they would neither deserve nor get independence. Yet for him, the fight against untouchability was above all a requirement of simple humanity. When in June 1947, an unhappy Gandhi acquiesced in the partition to which leaders of the Indian National Congress had agreed as the price for Indian independence, he reminded the Congress, where high caste Hindus formed a large majority, that independence or the departure of the British was only a step towards other goals that were as big or bigger. Quote, what about the untouchables? He asked the Indian All India Congress Committee. If you say, Gandhi went on, that untouchables are nothing, that the Adivasis, India's indigenous tribals, are nothing, then you are not going to survive yourselves. But if you do away with the distinction of high caste and low caste, if you treat the low castes, the untouchables, and the Adivasis as equals, then something good will have come out of a bad thing, the partition." Unquote. Now, talented colleagues of his also spoke at this crucial AICC meeting including Nehru, Patel, Azad, and Pant, men who would lead the future government of free India. But the 77-year-old Gandhi was the only one there to address the question of the untouchables. His speech of less than 10 minutes was more forward-looking than the utterances of younger colleagues. That speech underlined two other challenges that a free, if, if truncated India would immediately face, Hindu-Muslim relations, and the question of the princely states, said Gandhi. In the three quarters of the country that has fallen to, to our share, 
Hinduism is going to be tested. If you show the generosity of true Hinduism, you will pass in the eyes of the world. If not, you will have proved Mr. Jinnah's thesis that Muslims and Hindus are two separate nations. He continued, that some princely states should want to secede from India is a very serious thing. The princes must recognize the paramountcy of the people as they recognized the paramountcy of the British government." Unquote. Now to return to the shame of caste hierarchy and untouchability, Gandhi nourished his passion against this shame through Vaishnava Jana, that song about knowing the other person's pain. There were other texts too for nurturing that passion, scriptural texts, non-scriptural texts, Indian texts, non-Indian texts, and ugly realities around him always summoned it. But we should not underestimate the influence of Vaishnava Jana. That song was sung in Gandhi's large joint family when he was a child. His parents, older brothers, sister, half-sisters, cousins, uncles, and aunts were all familiar with that song. But they did not deduce the shame of untouchability from Vaishnava Jana. People whose pain a good man should feel could not, in their view, include untouchables. When the boy Mohan was hardly yet 12, his mother, Putlibai, told him that he was not to touch Uka, the untouchable boy who cleaned the lavatories in the Gandhi house in Rajkot. Apparently, Mohan had tussles with her on the question, and he questioned her reasoning. Yet he tried to obey the injunction, which was that any accidental contact with Uka or any other untouchable called for a cleansing bath. If a bath could not be easily had, Mohan was to cancel the unholy touch, his mother told him, by touching any Muslim passing by. The second pollution would remove the first. <laughs> the boy taught by a loving and much loved mother to view a section of Hindus and all Muslims as unclean and inferior by birth ended up fighting harder than anyone else against untouchability and for Hindu-Muslim partnership. Despite considerable progress, caste justice remains distant today in India. Hindu-Muslim partnership, too, was only partially achieved. Independence was accompanied not only by partition, but also by great carnage, despite Gandhi's attempts to, to avert those outcomes. Later, we will look at some of these attempts. Here, let us merely note that after Pakistanis heard on the evening of 30 January 1948 that Gandhi had been killed, many of them skipped their meal that night. One of their tallest leaders, Mia Iftikharuddin of Lahore, referred to the preceding carnage against Hindu and Sikhs in Pakistan's West Punjab province and against Muslims in India's East Punjab province and said, each one of us who has raised his hand against innocent men, women, and children during the past months, who has publicly or secretly entertained sympathy for such acts, is a collaborator in the murder of Mahatma Gandhi. 11 years later, in 1959, a 30-year-old man called Martin Luther King Jr., preaching in a church in Montgomery, Alabama, talked of Gandhi, quote, they killed him, this man, who had galvanized 400 million Indians for independence. One of his own fellow Hindus felt that he was a little too favorable towards the Muslims, 
unquote. King was implying that independence was not Gandhi's sole or dominant goal. As he saw it, Gandhi was asking his people to feel the other person's pain. Now, Gandhi did not invent the words addressed to the Almighty, Ishwar, Allah, Tere Naam, you are Ishwar, you are Allah, but his life, message, and legacy are fused with it. When I visited Noah Khali in November 2000, 54 years after Gandhi's trek there, I asked residents I bumped into on country roads if they remembered Gandhi. The reply of Sirajul Islam Majumdar of village Kamalpur, a man in his 50s and son, as he told me, of Dr. Khalilur Rahman Majumdar, was as follows, quote, my father told us of Raghupati Raghav Raja Ram Ishwar Allah Tere Naam. Sirajul Islam did not just pronounce the words, he sang them 54 years after his father had heard them from Gandhi. Then he added with some pride, my grandfather protected Hindus on his roof during the rioting. As far as I know, the line Ishwar Allah Tere Naam was not recited around the boy Mohan in his boyhood home in Rajkot. Gandhi seems to have heard it first only on 22 January 1947 in Paniala village in Noakhali, when his grandniece Manu sang it at the daily multi-faith prayer meeting open to anyone interested, which had become part of Gandhi's life. Observing that Paniala's Muslims who had gathered in large numbers liked the verse, Gandhi asked Manu to sing the line daily from now on. He told Manu, God himself breathed it into your mind. The line has now been breathed into the minds of hundreds of millions in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh who see it as both a core Gandhi message and an, and an obvious truth. Though called by various names, God was one. And though Gandhi first heard this song only a year before his death, he believed in its truth from boyhood, if not from childhood. Here are some of Gandhi's recollections offered at different times about his boyhood and childhood. In 1942, he said, quote, I believed even at a tender age that it did not matter if I made no special effort to cultivate friendship with Hindus, but I must make friends with at least a few Muslims. In 1947, Gandhi again claimed that his belief in complete brotherhood amongst Hindus, Muslims, and Parsis dated back to before 1885, to before the Congress was born, he pointed out. At the time that intercommunal unity possessed me, he said, I was a 12-year-old lad. In January 1948, at the start of what would prove to be his last fast for Hindu-Muslim reconciliation, Gandhi again recalled his boyhood dream of amity between Hindus, Muslims, and Parsis, dating that dream to Rajkot and to a time when he never even read the newspapers, could read English with difficulty, and my Gujarati was not satisfactory, as he put it. In a talk given 20 years earlier in 1927, Gandhi clearly recalled, without naming him, his Muslim friend from school, Mehtab, who also features, again without being named, in Gandhi's autobiography, which was written in the 1920s. In this 1927 talk, Gandhi spoke of his, quote, vivid recollections from his school years, 
of boys who had put on an air because they had athletic skill and physical power. But, said Gandhi, their pride went before destruction because weaker ones, realizing their haughtiness, segregated them. And so they really dug their own graves." Unquote. Gandhi had tried in school to befriend the athletic, daring, and self-isolated Mehtab, a classmate of Gandhi's brother, Karsan, older than Mohandas by three years. This interesting Mohandas-Mehtab relationship continued when in 1897 or 1898, Mehtab joined Gandhi in South Africa as manager of the large house that Gandhi, by now a successful lawyer, was keeping in Durban. The dramatic story of how that relationship in Durban ended within months is told in the autobiography. However, 14 or 15 years later, Mehtab's wife, Fatima, played a significant role along with her mother in the major Gandhi-led Satyagraha of 1913 for the rights of Indian women and men in South Africa. After his school years in Rajkot and before his legal work in South Africa, Gandhi had spent three years from 1888 to 1891 in London as a law student. There he learned something about the prophet of Islam from Carlyle's Heroes and Hero Worship, which an unnamed friend had recommended. Interestingly, too, young Gandhi participated in meetings in London of the Anjumane Islam, founded in 1886 for Muslim students in London by an Indian barrister, Abdullah Sohravardi. We know the name of at least one Muslim student he befriended in London, Mazharul Haq from Bihar, a future president of the Muslim League. And we know that he noticed that some Muslim students then, in the 1880s, were attracted by ideas of pan Islamism. But the point to return to is this. The thought, if not the precise words of Ishwar, Allah, Tere Naam, had germinated in Gandhi from his boyhood and his youth. In different corners of India, from posters stuck to a tree trunk, tree trunk maybe, or to a lamppost, wall, or billboard, a Gandhi wearing spectacles under a bald head often looks at Indians usually next to a text which may read, let us make India clean or a call of that sort. For me, the eyeglasses are a reminder of Gandhi, the reader, writer, and independent thinker. For 45 continuous years from 1903, when Indian opinion first appeared in South Africa, to his death in 1948, Gandhi wrote for his journals. He wrote two books, Satyagraha in South Africa and the Autobiography, and he wrote a phenomenal number of letters using the left hand when his right hand was worn out. Many letters were political, including some designed to prod or confront India's British rulers, but most were personal, dealing with specific issues the addressee might have raised. What I also take from Gandhi's probing spectacles is his repeated insistence that religious verses cannot be above reason and morality, to quote him. In November 1917, when defenders of untouchability cited ancient verses to justify their stand, Gandhi replied, it is no good quoting verses from Manus Smriti and other scriptures in defense. A number of verses in these scriptures are apocryphal. A number of them are quite meaningless. Added Gandhi, quote, 
even slavery in America is not worse than our untouchability. In a preface in 1918 to a collection of poems on how untouchables were being treated in Gujarat, Gandhi wrote, referring to the author, Sri Padiyar has given a heart-rending picture which cannot but fill the reader with horror to the very roots of his being. And Gandhi added that the poems should be read out to men and women in their millions the same way that stories of Krishna in the Bhagavat are read out in every square. His spectacles should remind us of this Gandhi, who not only championed reason, but also wanted India's millions to be made aware of the horrid realities of an evil practice. With his ubiquitous pocket watch, Gandhi introduced punctuality to a nation that comprehended notions of infinity and eternity but seemed less committed to dates, hours, and minutes. I see the pocket watch, which was a symbol against wasting time. Gandhi called it theft. Also as a prod towards efficiency. Among other things, Gandhi's watch reminds me that one of his innovations was to turn an unwieldy body called the Indian National Congress that gathered once a year into a fighting machine with elected committees at every level from village or town to taluka, district, and province, culminating in an All India Congress Committee and a year-round working committee that could assemble at short notice. Asked in 1919 to design a new structure for the Congress, Gandhi not only produced a scheme, by 1920 his design was implemented. As for the broom, sanitation was not only one of Gandhi's lifelong passions, it was constantly demonstrated in his ashrams and also at the great political and social gatherings that he, his colleagues, and lieutenants organized. Picking up a broom, Gandhi would start cleaning the mess the delegates, including distinguished ones, had made. Some embarrassed fellow participants would follow him in the exercise. But even the many who did not would remember that British rule was not the only unattractive site in India. And at a time when some of India's finest minds sought to replicate in their land the West's crowded factory towns, Gandhi insisted that clean air and clean water were greater priorities. Thus, on 6 January 1947, he told peasants in Chandipur in East Bengal that nothing was more important than, quote, how to get pure water in the villages, how to keep ourselves clean, how best to utilize the soil from which we have sprung, how to breathe in life's energy from the infinite sky above our head, how to draw fresh life from our surroundings, and how best to use the rays of the sun. The broom, the pocket watch, spectacles have become Gandhi's logos, but the spinning wheel was his symbol by design. Again and again, Gandhi said, that the spinning wheel is what he stood for. By spinning on a small, inexpensive wheel at home, any old woman, a man, a youngster, the malnourished, the landless laborer, the unemployed, the underemployed, could make precious coppers and gain dignity. The spinning wheel empowered the weak. It empowered the individual. It turned a consumer into a producer. It equalized the untouchable with the Brahmin demolished every caste barrier, taught elite, rich, and privileged Indians 
to earn their bread by the sweat of their brow. Town dwellers, or the better off, built a bond with spinners and weavers when they bought khadi or khaddar, cloth made from start to finish by hand. The cloth the wheel made could be touched, felt, seen, and displayed. By wearing khadi or khaddar, fighters for independence carried on their bodies a common, visible, and proud flag of self-reliance. Every man or woman who wore khadi or carded or span or wove for it felt tied by its threads to Mahatma Gandhi, to India's poor, to Swaraj, to Satyagraha. The Arab poet Mikhail Noema wrote, the spindle in Gandhi's hand became sharper than the sword. The simple white sheet wrapping Gandhi's thin body was an armor plate which guns from the fleets of the master of the seas could not pierce. And the goat of Gandhi became stronger than the British lion." Unquote. To Gandhi, the spinning wheel also symbolized non-violence. Here is what he said in 1938 in Bannu, in the Northwest Frontier Province, then part of India, and since 1947 close to the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. Quote, the charkha, the spinning wheel, he said, is not my invention. It was there before. God whispered into my ear, if you want to work through nonviolence, you have to proceed with small things, not big." Unquote. The young Gandhi had not been a votary of nonviolence. When he was a schoolboy in the 1880s, the violent 1857 revolt, while centered in northern India and leaving Gandhi's Gujarati world more or less untouched, was a recent memory. And the boy Mohan welcomed talk of driving the British out by physical force, a task for which, so his friend Mehtab told him, boys needed to strengthen themselves by eating meat. But that generation of young Indians was also attracted by social reforms inspired by the British advent, including notions that children should not marry and that widows should be permitted to remarry. In a talk that 18-year-old Mohandas gave to his school before leaving for London, he was the first youth, by the way, in Kathiawar from his Banya caste to go to England. He said he would work for, quote, big reforms, unquote, and he hoped that others would too. In his three years in England, Mohandas did not run into any hostility or superiority from the Britons he met. A journal he kept on the ship that brought him back to India refers to, quote, dear London, unquote, and its charms. But after he had returned to India, the rough behavior towards him of the chief imperial agent in Rajkot, Charles Ollivant, who ordered Mohandas thrown out of his imperial office, shocked him. The more so because Mohandas had met Ollivant in London when the officer was on leave and had found him friendly enough. Recovering from this shock, in May 1893, Gandhi went to South Africa to assist with a lawsuit that a rich Muslim trader and ship owner known to Gandhi's family and belonging like the Gandhis to Katiawar had launched against a cousin. Within days of arriving in South Africa, Gandhi learned lessons about racism, including when he was summarily ejected at Peter Maritzburg Station in the British colony of Natal from the first class coach for which he held a proper ticket. Believing that London could chastise Natal, 
Gandhi placed hopes in imperialism. Victoria, Empress of India, and Queen of England, who had promised equality between races after the 1857 revolt, was still on the throne. Gandhi sang God Save the Queen with gusto and taught his family to do likewise. In the end, it was satyagraha or nonviolent resistance rather than imperialism that brought valuable gains to Indians in South Africa. How Gandhi found satyagraha in South Africa will be part of the next lecture. Here, let us mark that despite disappointments, the Gandhi returning in 1915 remained a believer in empire. In March 1918, this is what he privately said to a talented new colleague and secretary, Mahadev Desai. Quote, I have to cruelly suppress my urges. Ever since I read the history of the East India Company, my mind refuses to be loyal to the British Empire, and I have to make a strenuous effort to stem the tide of rebellion. The first thought that rises up in the mind is that the British should be driven out of India bag and baggage. But, continues Gandhi, a feeling deep down in me persists that India's good lies in the British connection, and so I force myself to love them. He would summon the will to love the British, but in 1920 he decided that he would also fight the empire. In another lecture, we will look in detail at the Gandhi empire clash. Here we may merely mark that in 1930, the year of the Salt March, he told a colleague, Kakar Talelkar, I was born to destroy this evil government. Two years later, he said again to Kalilka, quote, just as a pregnant woman takes care of her health for the sake of the baby in her womb, I take care of myself for the sake of the Swaraj, the independence that is supposed to be in my womb, unquote. In between, in 1931, he told William Shirer, American reporter, future author of The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, quote, you will see, my dear Mr. Shirer, we shall gain our freedom in my lifetime, unquote. Yet in March 1930, while announcing to the Viceroy, Lord Irwin, his intention to launch a campaign of disobedience, this very Gandhi had added, quote, if I have equal love for your people with mine, it will not long remain hidden." Unquote. Whether or not the empire's guardians recognized Gandhi's love for the British, they understood the strength of his fight, the power of his non-violent lati. Here are three imperial verdicts. On the non-cooperation movement of 1920-22, quote, Gandhi's was the most colossal experiment in world history and it came within an inch of succeeding, unquote. Lord George Lloyd, Governor of Bombay, 1918-1923. On the Salt March and related Satyagrahas of 1930, quote, such defiance and humiliation has not been known since the British first trod the soil of India, unquote. Winston Churchill in the House of Commons, 12 March, 1931. On Quit India, August 1942, quote, by far the most serious rebellion since that of 1857, unquote, Lord Linlithgow, Viceroy, in a letter dated 31 August 42 to Prime Minister Winston Churchill. In the final weeks of British rule, other leaders of India's independence movement softened their language towards the empire. 
but Gandhi remained vigilant about India's dignity. The love he wished to harbor was the love of an equal. This came across when at the end of June 47, the Viceroy Lord Mountbatten evidently told Gandhi, quote, that if Congress members of his interim executive did not adopt a helpful attitude, the British might not quit, quit on August 15, by then the agreed date of independence. And also that, quote, if partition had not been agreed to during British occupation, the Hindus being the majority party would have never allowed partition and would have held the Muslims by force under subjection, unquote. In a letter of protest, Gandhi informed Mountbatten that his remarks had, quote, startled him, reminding the 47-year-old Viceroy, who was also a famed admiral, that the Congress had solemnly declared that it would not hold by force any Muslim majority area that might wish to separate. The 77-year-old Gandhi added, quote, even if I stand alone, I swear by nonviolence and truth together standing for the highest order of courage before which the atom bomb pales into insignificance, what to say of a fleet of dreadnoughts. After this reminder from Gandhi that the independence agreed upon was not a favor from the empire, thoughts of postponing the date were abandoned. Although Hindu-Muslim violence was marring the coming of independence, Gandhi shared the pride of that was being felt across the subcontinent. On 10 June 47, he said in a letter to a friend, quote, for 60 years we have been in the thick of the fight and now we have ushered the goddess of liberty into our courtyard, unquote. Other Indians felt similarly. However, what Gandhi said in April 1947 to leaders from Asia who had gathered in New Delhi at Nehru's initiative could not have come from anyone else, quote, all the Asian representatives have come together. Is this in order to wage a war against Europe, against America, or against non-Asians? No, this is not India's mission. The first of Asia's wise men was Zoroaster. He belonged to the East. He was followed by the Buddha, who belonged to the East, to India. Who followed the Buddha? Jesus, who came from the East. Before Jesus was Moses, who belonged to Palestine, although he was born in Egypt. After Jesus came Muhammad. I do not know, continued Gandhi, of a single person in the world to match these men of Asia. And then what happened? Christianity became disfigured when it went to the West. The message of Asia is not to be learned through Western spectacles or by imitating the atom bomb. If you want to give a message to the West, it must be the message of love and the message of truth. I want you to go away with the thought that Asia has to conquer the West through love and truth. Of course I believe in one world. How can I possibly do otherwise when I became an inheritor of the message of love that these great unconquerable teachers left for us, Continue, continues Gandhi. In this age of democracy, in this age of awakening of the poorest of the poor, you can re-deliver this message with the greatest emphasis. You will complete the conquest of the West, not through vengeance, because you've been exploited, but with real understanding. This conquest will be loved by the West itself." Unquote. Four days before India's freedom, the BBC asked for a message from the empire's 
chief foe, who found himself in Calcutta at the time, hoping to proceed to Noakali. The moment of triumph was also one of sadness over violent incidents. And an embarrassed Gandhi felt he had nothing to say to London. The BBC pleaded. His message would be broadcast in several languages, Gandhi was told. Through Nirmal Kumar Bose, Gandhi repeated his unwillingness, quote, I must not yield to the temptation. They must forget that I know English. To help bring peace to Calcutta, which was seeing violence, Gandhi, accompanied by Hassan Surawardi, seen by many of the city's Hindus as the architect of anti-Hindu violence, moved into Hyderi Manzil, an old abandoned Muslim house in Beliaghata, a rundown Hindu majority locality where Muslim residents felt threatened with some leaving Beliaghata. Accusing Gandhi of a pro-Muslim bias, a band of angry young Hindus asked him to move out of Beliaghata. He had two sessions with the group, including one in Suravadi's presence. If Beliaghata's Hindus invited their Muslim neighbors to return, he said to them, he and Suravadi would move to a predominantly Muslim area until Hindus were invited to return there. The young men were completely won over by this offer, and another irate group was specified when Surawadi boldly admitted responsibility for the great Calcutta killing that had taken place a year earlier. The next day, 14th of August, was wonderfully different. Gandhi wrote about it in his journal, Harijan. In their thousands, he wrote, Calcutta's residents, residents began to embrace one another and to pass freely through places considered to be points of danger by one party or the other. Hindus were taken to their masjids by their Muslim brethren, and the latter were taken by their Hindu brethren to the mandirs. Both with one voice shouted, Jai Hind, or Hindus, Muslims, be one. India became independent before the morning. Thus it was from a Muslim house in one of Calcutta's poorest corners that Gandhi greeted independence. He recited his pre-dawn prayers, he plied his spinning wheel, he remembered Mahadev Desai's whose birthday it was, and said fruit juice would be his only food during the day. Though Gandhi had not felt like lighting lamps, fireworks had lit up Calcutta for all of the previous night. Gandhi wrote his quota of letters for the day. One was addressed to his Quaker friend in England, Agatha Harrison. My dear Agatha, this letter I'm dictating whilst I'm spinning. You know my way of celebrating great events, such as today's, is to thank God for it, and therefore to pray. This prayer must be accompanied by a fast, if the taking of fruit juices may be so described. And then, as a mark of identification with the poor and dedication, there must be extra spinning. My love to all our friends, ended Gandhi in his letter to Agatha Harrison. So on Independence Day, the empire's principal foe sent his love to British friends. In the afternoon, he conducted a prayer meeting in an open ground in Beliaghata. Thousands of Muslims and Hindus attended. Gandhi felt that the joy of fraternization was leaping up from hour to hour. In a short prayer talk, Gandhi expressed joy at the turn of events in Calcutta and concern over the news coming in of quote, madness, unquote, in Lahore, and also flooding in the Chittagong area, now part of Pakistan. He ended the talk by asking Calcutta's residents, quote, to treat the Europeans who stayed on in India 
with the same regard as they would expect for themselves, unquote. He had heard that Europeans were being compelled to utter independence cries. In the evening, making an unusual request for him, Gandhi asked to be driven anonymously around the city. He wanted to take in more of Calcutta's joy and also to probe in his words whether it was miracle or accident. On the streets, he heard from the joint throats of Hindus and Muslims the cry, long live Hindustan and Pakistan. Eid day fell three short days after independence on 18th August. Half a million Hindus and Muslims, half a million Hindus and Muslims attended Gandhi's prayer meeting held on the grounds of Calcutta's Mohammedan Sporting Football Club. Quote, I will never be able to forget the scene I have witnessed today, said Gandhi. In the months that remained before his death, Gandhi and India would witness other memorable scenes, including those of great pain and sorrow. But we have seen, I think, that Gandhi's thirst for friendship and dignity among human beings was not weaker than his love for India's liberty. Thank you. Thank you for being such a patient audience. Also, Professor, uh, you're speaking tomorrow about the partition? I am at the, yes, at the Muslim. Uh, Muslim studies. Studies, yeah. Okay, I have to, I have to see if Linda can pull so up that and then so go so into So that's not answer. part of this lecture series, no. but it is something I'm doing tomorrow. Yeah, yeah I do want to. Uh, so we'll break for two minutes and then we'll, we'll start with questions. I think there is some water there. 